What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. I met a very interesting person. She goes by the name of Jennifer Schultz. She's running for judge on the Court of Common Pleas. And we had a very interesting discussion surrounding how the courts are comprised in Philadelphia and in PA. And it's important to understand what uh, rights that we have as voters as we interact with the court system. And also, if we don't like a decision, what we can do in order to hold some of these judges and officials accountable. The other part of our conversation was just a background into her, what got her into her legal practices, some of the things that she's done on her private side of things um, when it comes to her experience with the law and uh, judicial system, and an understanding on the civil Gideon movement, something that's really important. The Gideon movement is what supplies people within the criminal uh, side of things with the ability to have equal representation within the court of law. That doesn't apply on the civil side. So we dive into that. We dive into just the importance of accountability and a system of fairness within our judicial system, but something that we can empower voters on and citizens of Philadelphia on how they interact with the court system that we live in. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering how I make my podcast sound so crisp and clean. Well, I have to thank the folks at Rec Philly. They provide me the space, the time, and equipment to make this podcast happen. And it doesn't just end there. It's also an opportunity to connect with other creative individuals just like me. And not just other podcasters. I'm talking writers, musicians, photographers, anyone that considers themselves a creative individual. So if that's you, head on down to Rec Philly. It is super affordable. The memberships are great. And it's an opportunity to flex your creative muscles. If that's you, I hope to see you there soon. Jennifer, thank you very much for stopping by today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it was really nice meeting you. We met a few weeks ago at, um, was it Millennials in Action? Um, so, yes. Uh, networking uh, uh, place, but then also an opportunity to speak with different candidates who are running for office, and you are running for? I am running for the Court of Common Pleas So here in Philadelphia. Um, that means a lot to a lot of people because I, I know – a lot of people just hear court and it's, I know for me as a black person, like the chills start running down the spine a little bit. But um, before we get into the court of common pleas and how courts are comprised within Philadelphia, let's talk a bit about you and your background. What got you into law? What got you into some of the work that you've been doing? So I have been practicing for almost 16 years now. Wow. And I went to law school because I wanted to be a voice for those who don't have one. Mm. I was always drawn to the idea of giving back to the community and um, advocating for those who needed help advocating. And I did a two-year clerkship with a federal judge, and then I went straight into legal services. And I've been in the legal services industry ever since. And legal services means that I've never charged a client for the work that I do. And I've been here in Philadelphia for almost 12 years now with Community Legal Services. I'm at the North Philadelphia office at Broad and Erie. I've been there the whole time. I've mm. been practicing uh, with CLS. And um, I've, done a, I've worn several different hats in that capacity. I have been, the whole time I've been with the Homeownership and Consumer Rights Unit. But for eight years, I also ran the intake process up there, which gave me 
um, it, it demanded that I understand a large swath of the law that people encounter and how to issue spot effectively and understand the resources that are available for people and the gaps in those resources so that I can properly direct them and assist them as, I, as we are able to. In the homeownership and consumer rights unit, um, I had, so that covers a lot of different topics. Sure. Uh, it includes foreclosure defense, property taxes and sheriff sales. For the past two years, I've been specifically funded by the state to do systemic work on rent-to-own transactions, wow. which are a very um, predatory and exploitive home sale transaction. And obviously, I represent the purchasers in those deals. And um, I've been, in that capacity, I've been doing test case work. I've been really understanding the laws that we have in Pennsylvania around that area because uh, while this transaction is relatively new for our era, it used to be very common before we had um, the um, the Fair Housing Act in the 1960s. Right. It actually was a transaction that was rather common for disenfranchised communities, um, often communities of color and other low-income communities would use this type of transaction. And so Pennsylvania did legislation decades ago about this topic and uh, we've all forgotten what those laws are mm -hmm. and how they work. So I've been spending a lot of time learning how they fit together and then educating attorneys across the state through webinars, through in-person trainings, and also through uh, providing substance support on individual cases they've been dealing with. Um, I've also done work in the student loan field as well as helping clients with other general consumer debts. So a lot of different places that I've uh, been able to yeah, practice you, over the years. You've, you've kind of lent your hand to a lot of people who don't have the access to um, to attorney or, or, or to, like you said, you, you, you don't charge for any work. How is that done? Um, at, this is all new to me, and I know it's new to a lot of people, especially that are uh, within my age. And they don't understand, or I guess there's a, a disconnect on the importance of representation on some of these civil um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, actions. Can can you talk about that and and some of the work that you've done to kind of make that more of a of a thing? Sure. So the the history of legal services actually goes back over a hundred years in this country. Um, it was very piecemeal originally. Um, it was often um, legal assistance that was directed towards immigrants, you know, a, mm. a century ago when people were coming from Europe and there were different um, support groups for, um, you know, like Germans or Italians, like these very, like, um, culturally oriented groups right. who then tried to provide direct assistance uh, to their membership and to newcomers from that affinity group. Um, then as part of the war on poverty, and a lot of the um, activities uh, that were promoted with um, Sergeant Shriver, they created the Legal Services Corporation in the 1960s. And that's really where we started to have a comprehensive network of legal services organizations across the country. Um, different pieces of that have been dismantled uh, as uh, starting in the 80s and then into the 90s. And so it functions differently now than it did before. Um, and now we've actually, in many areas, including Philadelphia, we've split into two groups. And one is called the restricted, and one is called the unrestricted. And that references that in the 90s, uh, as part of the uh, contract with America, um, there was a 
um, a set of rules that got placed onto the money that was coming from Legal Services Corporation. And mm. so organizations at the local level who would accept those funds had to not represent immigrants, undocumented immigrants. They couldn't do fee-shifting cases. They couldn't assist people uh, who were facing evictions based on drug issues. Mm. And there were a lot of other, like a list of, of things, cases they couldn't take. And so the decision that was made in different places, including Philadelphia, was, all right, we're going to have one organization that takes those funds and accepts those restrictions and helps people in the way they're able to. And then we're going to have another organization that will um, continue to find resources, uh, revenue streams from other places and be able to provide assistance in those other topic areas that the restricted organization cannot. Where I work, we are the unrestricted organization. Mm. Um, so I've had the good fortune um, both in both of my legal services jobs uh, that I've been at the unrestricted, re unrestricted organization, which lets us do a lot of that gap filling and um, thinking more systemically about how we can address different issues. It allows us to, so we're not restricted on lobbying activities. So we can do systemic advocacy, like talk to Harrisburg or talk to DC and say, hey, this law doesn't work quite right. We should fix it. Um, and uh, the other organization in Philadelphia that is able to, to take that other pot of money is Philadelphia Legal Assistance. They're You're talking about the unrestricted. No, they are the restricted. They are the restricted, yes. gotcha. Right. And so, the, and so together, we're able to um, cover a lot of the different civil needs there are. Mm. But neither of our organizations, nor any of the, I mean, literally dozens of other organizations in Philadelphia are able to meet the need because none of us receive funding to address all of the need that exists in civil cases, even basic human rights issues mm. like housing and parental rights. So where, where actually does that money come from? Um, so it's a, a, um, private donors, foundations and grants, um, state money, local money. Um, you know, it's a lot of different resources. There are different organizations and different governmental programs that want to address things. For instance, in the home ownership unit, there's a lot of concern about making sure people are protected from foreclosure. Mm. And so there are funding sources that say, well, you know, help people with foreclosure. Here's the pot of money so you can do that work. Um, and the same is true for a lot of our different um, units. And what you're saying is essentially there's just there's either not enough money or not enough uh, organizations that are available to help support some of the. We are the the need for legal the the level of need it vastly outpaces the funding that's mm. available. 80% um, of low-income litigants and 60% of middle-income litigants do not have an attorney when they're standing wow. in front of a judge on a civil case. Wow. Yes. Um, so there's a vast gap between the level of need and the level of funding that's being provided to, pr to meet that need. And what that means in practice is that um, my office, every office is always telling, we're always making these incredibly difficult decisions about who do we help and who do we say mm. sorry you you have a case you you need help but we cannot take your case that's a tough decision to make it, it's heart-wrenching yeah. and uh, being somebody who was running the intake process it was often fell upon my shoulders to have to explain to people why yes they have need but we are not able to help you. So you talked about some of the lobbying efforts you can do in Harrisburg to try to change um, some some laws that you see aren't going right. What are some of those things that um, that would help in in taking on more civil cases, or I guess even providing more funding? Right. So I think that um, so what we're talking about right now is really called the civil Gideon movement. There we go. 
and mm -hmm. that references Gideon v. Wainwright. That's the Supreme Court case that established in criminal cases, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be provided for you. Mm. And I just want to make clear that um, even though the, on the criminal side, the mandate of the public defenders is to meet all need, in truth, they are also not being funded at right. adequate levels, and they're also struggling to meet that mandate that they've been, that's been given to them. Right. Um, and so I don't want to make it sound like this is an us versus them idea. We're all in a position where uh, we're not, the funding levels do not match the need. And if you look at the historic funding levels in real dollars, they're less now than they used to be. Hmm. Um, in terms of um, how what could be changed, so it, it really is an, a systemic movement that needs to be addressed. And uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, is involved in this. It has been for over a decade. The, local, the, the state and the local bar associations are also working hard. And there are different ways to approach it. I mean, obviously, the ideal would be 100% funding for all need. Um, but we are so far from that goal. And in the meantime, it's trying to figure out how do we help people as we get closer to that ideal. Um, one of the great advances that we've had locally has been in the landlord-tenant system. And we did a study a few years ago where we looked at um, what is the impact when a person has representation in an eviction proceeding. And when a person has an attorney, they are only evicted about 5% of the time. When they do not have an attorney, it is 78% of the time. That's, that's disturbing. Yes, but the, the good news is that it has drawn attention and there is now a movement at the local level to try and provide funding to get to a 100% representation mm -hmm. model in the landlord-tenant process. Um, and that's, I'm not, I don't believe that's been fully enacted, but that is the aim that they're now trying to accomplish mm. at the local level. Um, and, that, and that also uh, has really been... Uh, guided by looking at what New York did. Because a few years ago, I think five years ago, New York City said, well, let's do that. Let's give 100% representation. If somebody's facing an eviction, and they will get an attorney when they walk into landlord-tenant court. And it has had a massive impact on um, tenants' rights in New York City. And it actually saves money. And the studies that have been done here in Philadelphia also demonstrate it's over a 12 to 1% return on the investment, so for every dollar you spend providing an attorney, you save $12 in other city services that mm. a person would need to access if they were to face an eviction. That, that I, it almost seems like it, it's just a no-brainer, really, that we should have 100% representation in these civil cases. Um, I mean, I'm a big supporter in the idea that people's cases should be heard fairly, and yes. our ad adversarial system works best when p the parties are equally matched. Right. Um, beyond that, I think it's a policy debate, hmm. and that's for other places. Other places, that, yes. other people, because yes. I, I don't, uh, I can get into policy, but that's anyway. Uh, so let's let's talk about that. Actually, let's talk about the the, the court system um, that you talk about. You said you're running for the Court of Common Pleas. Uh, what does that mean? Are you, if, if I get a ticket, am I going to see you in traffic courts? If I'm suing, like what, what court, what types of cases does the court of common pleas see? And then also what, what are the number of different court, uh, courts within uh, Philadelphia? Oh goodness. Okay. Yes. Very broad um, question. So let's go from the bottom up. <laughs> yes. So you, you made a reference to traffic court. We do not have traffic court anymore. 
It used to exist. It's been abolished. Hmm. So if you get a ticket and you're challenging it, you will find yourself in municipal court. You would also be in municipal court if you are facing an eviction. That's the, the place that those start. Mm. Or if you are in small claims court, mm. um, also arraignments and all misdemeanor trials are held in municipal court. So that's what we call a court of lesser jurisdiction or limited jurisdiction. So you have to fall into one of those categories to start in that court. Gotcha. Anything that's in municipal court can be appealed to the Court of Common Pleas. And anything else will start in the Court of Common Pleas. So all of family law is the Court of Common Pleas. Um, larger dollar civil cases, anything $12,000 or more. Mm. Um, felony cases for on the criminal side, all of probate and, the, and orphans court. Um, and so that's so everything else is in the Court of Common Pleas, and that's what we call the Court of General Jurisdiction. Mm. And that's the trial-level court. If you have a problem with what happens in your Court of Common Pleas, there are two different appellate courts in our state. We have the Superior Court and the Commonwealth Court. Um, and very roughly broken down, the, the Superior Court is where most appeals are going to go. The Commonwealth Court hears more specialized issues like... Um, Areas that have to do with governance questions or the power, the, mm. the powers of the different branches of government, tax issues. Um, they also will hear administrative appeals um, straight to the Commonwealth Court. And then we have um, one uh, highest court, which is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Right. Now, how you, you're running for election? Are all judges elected? Are some appointed? How does this work within? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the few states that elects every judge in our state top to bottom. Hmm. Um, so if you are an active voter, you may recall that there were Supreme Court judges on the ballot two and four years ago. Yes. Um, this cycle, you will have two choices for the Superior Court. Uh, well, let me, let me clarify that. There'll be three people on your ballot, and you get two votes for the Superior Court. And then in Philadelphia, there are 25 candidates running for six positions in the Court of Common Pleas. That's where I'm running. Mm -hmm. And then also in Philadelphia, um, there are two candidates running for one position in municipal court. I, th I think that's is something that's so extremely important to understand, uh, especially when individuals within a city have problems with determinations on particular cases, especially high-profile cases. I'm speaking very specifically of the Meek Mill decision, and you don't necessarily have to weigh on that, but people who have a problem with how these decisions turn out like they have the power to use their vote and to to make something happen yes so um you know everybody has their own filters then that they use for deciding how they want to sure. vote um but you know i think the idea behind having the community weigh in on their judges is so that the judges can reflect the community values right. fundamentally a judge is supposed to first and foremost follow the law and a judge is not supposed to interject his or her personal opinion to override the law as it exists. But there are many areas where there is what we call judicial discretion. And you can see that in, air, in air issues of sentencing in criminal cases. Mm -hmm. There is also um, this, con this broad concept in civil court called equity, which generally means fairness. And it gives ju judges a certain degree of discretion to say, 
well, the law says this is supposed to happen, but equity says that it, that would not be a good result. And it's a little more complicated than that, but that's part of the judicial decision-making process. And so thinking about, you know, is this a judge who's going to, you know, see see problems in a way and make decisions in a way that reflect our community values, I think is why we have the election process. Um, oh, you did ask about appointments, and I do want to clarify, we do yes. also have an appointment process. Mm -hmm. Between elections, the governor has the power to appoint and then confirm through the Senate. Um, but those appointees still have to run for election in the next available cycle. Right. When when it comes to uh, let, let's talk about the equity piece for a second, because you like, can you expand on what that means when it comes to the the judge's determination as far as like what kind of equity are they referring to? So, for instance, in a, so one of the ways that we will often appeal to the court's discretion is in the homeownership context is in. Um, asking the court to give a postponement of a sheriff sale. Mm. So the sheriff sale is a very important marker in the process of a foreclosure. Once the gavel on the sheriff sale goes down, you've pretty much lost your home, unless some very exigent circumstances exist. So um, in terms of trying to help a person save a home, our focus is to prevent that sheriff sale. And, you know, and also ultimately get to a workout, but we, we want to also make sure that sheriff sale doesn't happen in the process because if that sheriff sale happens, it's game over. Right. And so it's basically a completely equitable process to go in front of the judge and say, judge, we need more time. You know, yes, this person has a judgment that says that the mortgage company is entitled to sell this house. You know, we're not arguing legally that they're not entitled to sell the house, at least not in this particular proceeding. Um, we are simply asking the court, please give us more time because please. <laughs> I mean, that's basically equity. Yeah. And then the judge is left with this complete judicial discretion that's functionally un unappealable. And they get to decide, okay, should this person be given more time? Is it fair to give this person more time? Mm. And is it fair to make the mortgage company wait more? Mm. Uh, because if we're at a process where there's a sheriff's sale scheduled, if we're talking about a home ownership case, it's been over a year right. since the person's made payments, probably closer to 18 or 24 months. And, you know, so the judge is sitting there trying to weigh, should this person get more time? Should I make this mortgage company wait longer? I gotcha, gotcha. How do I figure out what's fair? How do I determine what's fair, but also what's consistent within the law? And then it's applied to uh, people of all demographics, of all neighborhoods, and kind of evenly. Um, I think I, I get the point that you're making. Um, and I, 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 I wanted to zero in on that uh, specifically because you, you mentioned that um, the equity versus upholding the law. And there, there, there seemed to be a little bit of, a, I won't say a disconnect, but... Certainly red flags if laws aren't being uh, enforced evenly across the board from people of all demographics, especially. Right. Well, I know that, that right now a hot topic in our country is implicit bias. Yes. And um, anytime you get into these areas of discretion, you're going to – that's where implicit bias can have the ability to creep in. I mean, I think we know in general implicit bias is kind of part it's of... It's there. It's, it's baked it's, into yep. the cake. That's what makes it implicit. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> we don't know it. <laughs> We're not aware of it. Yeah. Um, but that's... But, you know, if you have... When, they, when you look at, for instance, sentencing discrepancies for um, people of different races 
And that's where you can see a lot of this implicit bias mm. factoring in. Um, but the struggle, and I'm not sure that we have real solutions yet, is how do we get to a result that avoids those biases or limits those biases? Because, um, you know, some of, the, some of the different proposals out there are, well, what if we just go to a more strict, like a table or some kind of a computer model, and we just put the data in and out will pop the answer and there's no human bias in there. But what we have found is that the bias gets built into the program. Yes, yes. <laughs> what algorithms and biases get put into creating this program, yes. and it yes, it's the same thing yes. all over again. And and there's actually another um, judicial candidate, Anthony Kiriakakis, mm. who's been involved in in those conversations as part of his practice over the years, and he's pushed very hard against these ideas of those sentencing models, specifically because of that concern that you don't want to you don't want to institutionalize the bias into right. the formula. Right. Um, Which can very easily happen. Yes. I mean, we see it within yes. social media. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Uh, well, but, but that but that is a great <laughs> example as yeah. well. That you know, we I'm not sure that we have as a society figured out this answer to those problems. I do think it's good that we're at least recognizing there is a problem. Sure, you don't just get to a solution if you're not even thinking about right. it. Right. Um, this was this was very um, nerdy, I think, but I think also really a good takeaway for understanding how our court systems are structured and. And uh, some of the work that you've done, especially within the Civil Gideon movement, I think that's understanding that the, the, the importance of representation, not just in criminal, but in civil cases and, and how if you don't have that representation, you are going in, in a severe disadvantage, especially for those who are going up against evictions. Uh, I mean, that the, the implications of it are they speak for themselves when it comes to homelessness and, and poverty and, and access to different education and, and schooling and all of that relates to kind of housing and, and, and evictions and all of that, which, and anyway, um, I have one last question and it is completely unrelated to politics or judges or courts or anything. And it's what's your favorite thing in the world right now? Oh gosh. <laughs> Favorite thing in the world? Yes, for you. Well, chocolate's always up there. (laughs) I mean, but you know, I really I have found such an appreciation for vacations, Mm. and it wasn't something that I did very well when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And you know, as I have, you know, I'm very much a work hard, play hard kind of person, and having a vacation and my so my favorite thing is a sunny beach. The night with be- you know with beautiful sand and beautiful waters. I love to go to the Caribbean nice. on vacation. That that it's sounds amazing and blissful, and I'm sure it'll be rainy at some point when this comes out. So <laughs> just replay that part and imagine yourself on a sunny beach, just blue skies, yes. and puffy clouds. Jennifer, thank you, thank you very much for stopping by, helping educate me, but also our listeners on. Uh, the comprisement of our court system and how we can play a better role in knowing who's on uh, the bench in Philadelphia. Absolutely. Thank I'm you, Jennifer. To help. And I am Jennifer Schultz. I'm running for the Court of Common Pleas. I am Jennifer Judge, button number four. Button number four. Remember that, folks. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. All right, special thanks to Jennifer Schultz for sitting with me on the podcast today. If you like some of the things she represents, some of the things that she's done in her private practices, she is button number four. Primary elections are May 21st, so make sure you guys are getting out there and voting. But also understand what this civil Gideon movement is and what Gideon is. 
public defenders represent people within criminal cases and the funding is already lacking. How they represent people isn't the best. Um, some people feel as though they are just pushing people to either plead guilty or cop uh, police some type of plea sentences within their cases that they're tried on. That doesn't exist at all in civil cases. And the numbers that she threw out there when it comes to people being evicted and the lack of representation within that eviction hearings and, and civil cases, that's astonishing. That's causing poverty. That's causing a number of different things where we already have a lot of constraints in our community in Philadelphia. Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate of the big cities in the country. So having another factor that's drawing it down by forcing evictions, that's a huge problem. So understand that, understand what you can do to make sure that civil Gideon movement is enforced within Philadelphia and it's something that is supported for people of all demographics and there's equal representation in our court system for everyone. If you guys have any questions, any guests that you'd like to uh, see me interview, any topics that you'd like to see me cover, you can always email me at realtalk at salazcorner.com. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Salaz Corner and check out some new blog posts I have coming your way at salazcorner.com. Until next time, peace y'all.